0: outline there if you want to jot down some notes, but I, I just want to talk today a little bit about doubt and faith, doubt and faith, and as you're thinking about that, I, how many of you have a nickname that somebody gave you, how many of you don't want anybody else to know what it is, I've, I've, heard, I've heard husbands and wives, in fact, I talked to a couple after the first service, and they said, we can't tell you what the nicknames are that we gave each other, and I said, I probably don't want to know. Uh, that might just change the impression that I have of you two dignified people forever. So we'll just kind of let that one slide. But when I was in high school, some of you have been here long enough to know that I told the story when I went to get my driver's license. I was four feet 11 inches tall and, and weighed about 78 pounds and had to sit on a pillow to drive. And, and the, the, the driving instructor looked in there and said to me, Can you drive without the pillow? And I said, I don't know. I've never tried. He goes, Because if you. If you pass your test on this, it's going to be a condition that you always have to have it. So do you expect to grow? (laughs) Trying, but so so as a freshman in high school, I was a wrestler and uh, the lowest weight category was 98 pounds. I never had to worry about making weight because I was somewhere after I'd eaten a really, really good meal around 80 pounds. Uh, but there was, there was one of the, the referees in the local high school that was there in, in, in Missouri that, for whatever reason, he just liked me. And it, it's not a bad thing to have a referee like you. Uh, but he gave me a nickname. I remember um, after I had won a match, he raised my arm and he looked at me and he called me Mighty Mouse. <coughs> and, and it kind of stuck. Every time he, hey, Mighty Mouse. I'm going, really? Do you have to say that out loud? Can't, you know can that be our thing, just kind of a local thing, you know, but um, nicknames are always interesting, uh, in fact, there are some people who go their whole lives known by their nickname, it, it always interests me when I get to weddings, and I've known somebody by a certain name, and then I ask them, what is your real name for the wedding, and it's something completely different than I've known them by, uh, and then when I find out their real name, I know why they go by nicknames sometimes. Uh, <laughs> But over the course of life, we have known different people with nicknames, such as, you know, if I say the nickname, the Duke, who would you think of? John Wayne. (laughs) You're talking my language. (laughs) If I mentioned George Herman Ruth, who would you say? The Babe. There are a Yankee fan or two in here. Um, If for those of you that may be golf fans, if I said Eldrick Woods, his nickname is what? Tiger. you got those. Did you know that there were nicknames in the Bible, too? In fact, you've got John, who is also known as the Baptist. I've been looking to see if there was a disciple that went by something, the Assemblies of God. I can't find one in there. But John went by the Baptist, and then you had Peter, who was also known as the Rock. Uh, James and John I, went as the Sons of Thunder. I can only imagine what a Sunday afternoon lunch was like in their family, when you have two boys that are nicknamed Sons of Thunder. And then there's Judas Iscariot, who was the betrayer or the son of perdition. And then there's Barnabas, and I love Barnabas because Barnabas' nickname was the son of encouragement. And so, can you imagine walking down the street and somebody yelling, hey, there's the son of encouragement. Now that, you, you can tell but that one out loud. That one's a good one. You know, we'd be willing to go by that. And then there's Thomas. <laughs> Did you hear that? There was a groan that just went all over the whole place. Thomas. When we think of Thomas, what comes to mind? (laughs) Doubting Thomas. Do you know the interesting thing about nicknames is that you don't get to give yourself one. Somebody else gives it to you. Now, some of you who are grandparents have worked really, really hard to make sure that your grandkids call you by a certain name. Uh, I was going to be Papa. My oldest grandson couldn't say that for whatever. It came out Popeye. As long as it wasn't poo-poo and pee-pee, I was good with that. (laughs) Popeye, it works for me. My wife worked really, really hard to make sure that the kids could say, Mia, Mia. So, you know, sometimes we try to pick out our own nicknames. But um, we get to the topic today of doubt and faith, and and Thomas kind of rises to the surface as a personality that we would look like. And, And if I was to give you a little bit of a history... Uh, On the Apostle Thomas, we would recognize that in the first three Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we know that Thomas is listed among the 12 disciples, but that's it. That's that's all we know that is listed in those Gospels. But in John's Gospel, Thomas is mentioned three times. The first one being in, in John chapter 11, and the episode was this. Lazarus, a friend of Jesus, was very sick and out of desperation. Mary and Martha had sent word to Jesus that your friend is sick. We need you to come right away. And we know, according to the story, that instead of dropping everything and running to be with Lazarus, Jesus delayed a few days. And then out of left field one day, Jesus tells his disciples that Lazarus is dead and that he is returning to Judea to see him. And then in John chapter 11, verses 7 and 8, we get the response To the disciples when it says, then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you. And yet you are going back there. And when the disciples heard this, they became visibly upset. They said, you know what, if you go back. The people that tried to kill you before may succeed this time. And if we go with you, we may all end up per. And so it's really interesting here to note that none of them cared too much about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus as much as they cared about their own safety in this. If you go back to the place where people hate you, something bad could happen. And so Jesus didn't force the disciples to go with him. There's no demands that are made. At any point along the way, the disciples could have spoken up and refused to go. They could have said, hey, you have a death wish, and so if you want to go, you go. But we're going to stick it out here. But it was at precisely this moment that Thomas, that we meet Thomas in this. And fully, fully realizing the danger of returning back to Judea, Thomas spoke up and said to the other disciples, and it's in verse 16. Then Thomas, called Didymus, which means twin, said to the rest of the disciples, let us go that we may die with him. Let us go that we may die with him. What a statement. What an affirmation of faith and trust that Thomas put into Jesus. That you know what, if you're going, we're going. And if the worst case happens to you, then it will happen to all of us. Because I just want you to know that I am with you in all of this. And so we, we see Jesus and Thomas' relationship was such that Thomas was totally in with him. It took courage on the part of Thomas. So instead of of nicknaming Thomas the doubter, we could have looked at this passage and called him Thomas the risk taker. And it would have been an appropriate nickname for him. Because he was an example of one who was willing to take a risk. The next time that we see Thomas is on the night of the Last Supper. Jesus is there around the table, and he's breaking bread, and he's blessing the cup, and he gave it to his disciples in remembrance of himself. And this was going to be a very long and terrible night that was going to be filled with moments of pain and anguish, eventually leading to the cross. And just hours before his death, Jesus longed to share some special insights with his disciples. And we find these beautiful words that Jesus spoke in John 14, verses 1 through 4, when he says to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me that you may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And then Thomas Speaks up and interrupts, and he goes, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? At that moment, in Jesus' emotional plea of trying to demonstrate what he was preparing to do for them, Thomas almost rudely breaks into this conversation, but it wasn't out of rudeness, it was more out of a, just an intense inquiry as to. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And this, this tells us something about Thomas. Thomas was not only a risk taker, but Thomas was an inquirer. He was not a man to have considered himself one to have all of the answers. He knew that he didn't know anything, and instead, he as an individual listens to Jesus speaking and interrupts him and said, Father, you were, you were talking, and we don't know where you're going, and we don't know how to get there. I just need you. You're stating something here that I don't have settled yet in my heart. Honestly, we need more Christians who are longing to know more about Jesus and his plans for their life than we currently do. We need people that want to know Jesus at more than just a superficial level but are willing to say, I want to dig into your word and to see what you mean and to see how it applies to my life and to see how I can live this out and I'm not satisfied with just hearing it. I need to know you in it. And it was evident that Thomas had not yet figured out everything that Jesus was talking about, but one thing was for sure, Thomas loved Jesus and he wanted to know more about him. And so we could have given Thomas the nickname, the Inquirer because it would have fit with him, but we didn't, because the third time we meet Thomas is in the 20th chapter of John. In this particular instance, the doors were locked because they were afraid of the Jews, the disciples. Jesus appears to the ten, comes right through the wall, right through the door, and he says, peace be with you. Jesus then showed the ten disciples his hands and his side, and once again speaks that they would have peace and gave them permission. Just as the Father had sent him, so he was going to send them and gave him permission. Look at my hands and my feet. And one of the first things that the ten wanted to do because Thomas was not with them was to go and tell Thomas. And we read in John chapter 20, verses 24 and 25. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. And from this passage of scripture, Thomas has been forever given the nickname of the doubter. As I look at his reaction, was it really unexpected? I don't think so. We know that Thomas loved Jesus, and all of his hopes and dreams died with Jesus on the cross. And now it seemed as if Jesus' own disciples, some of his closest friends, were now mocking him and making fun of him because he wouldn't believe what they had already seen. And before we get too down on Thomas, what we need to remember is what he was asking to do, all the other disciples already had a chance to do. They had already been with Jesus and had already seen the proof that he was there. So he wasn't asking anything that they hadn't done. And we look at this and say, was Thomas a failure? I I suppose it would be easy for us who have lived perfectly to look at Thomas and scold him for his doubt, for his lack of faith. But when we do so, we must also chastise ourselves because I don't know about you, but I've had those moments of doubt too. How many of you have had doubt in your faith with Christ? Oh, good, I thought this one was just for me today. We deal with doubt. Because the enemy is great at whispering it in our ear. The enemy knows our moments of weakness, knows when to attack, and knows how to bring to us those moments where we really wonder, is our faith real? Is Jesus real? Is our trust in Him real? In fact, one of the things I... Love about the passage of Scripture is the other disciples that says in Mark 16, 11, that when Mary Magdalene went and told the disciples what she had seen, they said they didn't believe her. And so before we nicknamed Thomas the Doubter, we probably would have had to nickname all of the disciples the Doubters as a group because they experienced And the only reason the ten now believed that Jesus was truly alive was because they had seen him with their own eyes and heard him with their own ears. So Thomas simply wanted the same proof that they had already received. Dr. George Wood had an experience while visiting in Israel, and he wrote it in in one of his articles that I had read some time ago. He says, when I went over to the garden tomb and was there, he said, I walked into this empty tomb and I realized it doesn't prove anything. He said, you can live in Jerusalem and go every day of your life to the garden tomb, but it isn't going to change you. It's not an empty tomb that changes anyone. These people were not changed by the empty tomb. They went away depressed and muttering to themselves, just like I did as I left there thinking, I am thankful that God is not here. The thing that changes you is an encounter with the living God who used to be in the tomb but is alive and well today. It's not what the empty tomb is, it's who was there and the fact that you encounter him. We all need an encounter with the living God. And in fact, I would say that we are all a lot more like Thomas than we give ourselves a credit for, than we think we are, because unless we see something with our own eyes, and unless we hold it in our own hands, we have a hard time believing some things. We say, until I touch it, until I see it, then I will know. When I experience the living God, then I will know. What Thomas was going through is not uncommon to what we go through from time to time when we're facing doubt. Thomas had seen Jesus. The last time he saw him, he was dying on the cross or he was already dead and they were removing him from the cross. He had seen his mutilated body. He had seen them pry the nails from his hands. They'd seen the spear go into his side. He knew he was dead and from that moment, it completely devalued his faith. Because everything that he had put his faith and hope in in Jesus was laying there dead, gone. And from the natural perspective, we know that death is the end. So Thomas spent a week just trying to recalibrate. Now, some of you have gone through situations in your life where your world is rocked. Something comes out of nowhere and just... Your world is like you're rushing down a stream and you can't find a way to put your feet down and get a footing. You're just being bobbed in the wake of everything that's going on. And in that time, parts of our life feel as if our faith has been devalued. We wonder, is it real? Is this really happening to me? And it's not until we can finally get our feet down and and grab a hold and brace ourselves that we finally can stop and some of us need to preach to ourselves in those moments. Remind ourselves of who God is and what he has done. So Thomas had faced a week of a devalued faith. And then he gets to see Jesus. The days passed. The disciples gathered again. And this time Thomas was with them. And when Jesus came and stood among them, Jesus didn't waste a moment. He walked straight over to Thomas and he said, Thomas, here's my hand. Put your fingers in it. Here's my side. Thrust your arm in it. Stop doubting and believe. And I want to show you a painting that has been made of of what that moment might have looked like. Now, some of you are going, that is so gross. But for Thomas, for Thomas, he had to put his arm inside the wound to see that Jesus is really alive, that this is real Jesus. And immediately following that, we get to, Verses 28 and 29 of John 20, when it says, And Thomas said to them, said to him, My Lord and my God. He went from doubting Thomas to shouting Thomas. Because of an encounter with Jesus Christ. Some of you in your journey in life have come from places of tremendous doubt, tremendous skepticism. But I want you to know today that the presence of the living God is here and will encounter you so that you can go from places of doubt to places of shouting, my Lord and my God, I have experienced you and I know that you are real and I know that you care. I would would wonder if Thomas maybe was thinking, what should I do? Should Should I fall down and kiss Jesus' feet? Should I cry? Should I shout? What should I do? But what he responded as and the words that he used are absolutely amazing when in that singular moment of experiencing the living jesus his words were my lord and my god and for the first time in the bible jesus is called god he'd been called teacher son of David, even the son of God, but now one who had doubted and had been given a nickname of Doubting Thomas witnesses the greatest thing of all and is the first person to c- proclaim the living Jesus. You are my God. I am so glad today that we can personalize that and that Jesus is my God. Oh, Hallelujah. Jesus says to him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you believed. Blessed are those that have not seen and yet believe. It wasn't, he wasn't discounting the experience that Thomas was has. He was elevating us who come later and say that there will be a blessing to our faith that don't have the opportunity to touch him like that. But it was an instant replay of what had happened a week before, but Thomas was there. And apparently, Thomas never doubted Jesus again. In fact, after Pentecost, the Bible never mentions Thomas again, but history tells us that Thomas traveled throughout Persia and India and preached the gospel. In fact, there are several churches in India today that trace their history back to a time when Thomas came as a missionary. Thomas was speared to death by the enemies of the gospel, and he courageously died for the Lord that he once was nicknamed for doubting. Doubt and faith, things that we deal with all the time. And I believe that the Lord included this account of doubting Thomas for a special purpose. You see, Thomas had to face the issue each one of us has to face. Is Jesus the resurrected Son of God or is he not? I believe that today our doubts, the doubts that we deal with, often stem for other reasons besides the fact that we haven't been able to touch him. And I just want to touch on three of them really quick in preparation for an altar response. One of the reasons that people doubt, and I'm going to tell this to you because I love you, and if I were to see you on the edge of a cliff and your life was in danger, I would run out there and try to save you and try to bring you back or talk you back. I would plead for your safety. But here's why some of you struggle with doubt, and it's terrifying. It's because you're not saved. You come to church... You call this place your home, you enjoy the fellowship, you enjoy the community, but you have never committed your life to Jesus Christ. And that's why you struggle with doubt because you're not a believer. So many of you, at some point in your life, you entered into some, of a, some sort of a shallow commitment. Maybe, maybe you were one of those last week that when I asked for a response, you looked up, but you never made the response firm by coming and praying with somebody, and you just shot out the side door and you said, boy, I'm good today. I've got hell insurance. I, I lifted my eyes, and the pastor agreed with me. Let me tell you something. There is a public confession of your faith that needs to take place. And what happens in those situations when you have a shallow commitment, you culturally say, I'm a church person, or or maybe I check the box of I'm a Christian on whatever form I may have to fill out. But here's the way I know, and here's the way you can know. You do not hate sin. You do not love holiness. You do not pray. And you have not been transformed by the presence of God. Christianity is simply a cultural thing to you. And our culture and our country is in danger because of a cultural Christianity that has no life and no life that follows. And before you doubt me, some of you say, you know what? Who are you to question my relationship? Let me just read Matthew seven twenty one to you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Many, notice, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It is fascinating to me that God will use unbelievers and that the power of his name will do eternal things, but you get no reward if you've not... a. Accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. So powerful is His name and the authority of His name that people will think that being in ministry equates to living honorably for the Lord. And you know what's terrifying about this text is it clearly outlines the reality that you can be in the service of the King and never know Him. And some of you are wrestling with doubt where you are in your relationship with God because the truth is you have never Allowed him to regenerate your heart and you've never hated sin and you've never loved holiness. Secondly, I believe what causes a lot of doubt in people's minds is they have a hard time believing that they don't partner with Jesus in some ways for their salvation. I want to be a partner with you in this, Lord. Somehow you think that it is your good works... That if you're just good enough that when you stand before God, the judgment, he's going to put your bad things over here and your good things over here. And if the good things weigh just a little bit more, then hallelujah, you qualify and you're saved. I want you to know you have nothing whatsoever to do with your salvation. Nothing. And if you live your life trying just to do enough good work so that the the Father might smile at you and say, that was it, I was just waiting for that last obstacle, and now you've done enough good things that finally you qualify to be saved, I want you to know you're going to be sadly disappointed. So if you think that you have the ability to change your heart and to change your mind and to change the state of your sin by performing good works that people are watching, you will be sadly disappointed and there's a reason that you have this gnawing doubt, because you're not right with God. You see, I bring only one thing to Jesus and it's the same thing every one of you bring. I bring my sin. I bring my rottenness. I bring the stench of everything that I have tried to do that may be good and I come to the foot of the cross and I see the Savior there who gave me a gift that I cannot earn. I could not be good enough and I could not do enough good things. I simply come at whatever level I am and say, here is my stinky sin. Cover it with your blood because my salvation is dependent entirely upon the work of Jesus Christ and Him crucified I can't add a thing to it, and I can't take anything away. Some of you have worked so hard. Some of you have talked to people and tried to lead them to Christ, and they say to you, oh, if you only knew what I was, I've done, you would know God can't love me. Or, oh, as soon as I start to get things together, as soon as I get a grip on some of these things and, and kind of move out of this really bad place in my life, then I'll be ready to come to the Lord. There is no place that's good enough for you to come to the Lord where you have it all together. We are broken people. And we cannot fix ourselves. There's some people that believe because of their life that God is filled with rage for them. But Romans 8.26 says, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. In other words, God looks at you and says, I know you're weak. I know you're helpless. I know you can't do anything to fix your life. That's why I have come to be a help to you. I don't wait till you're strong enough to do something. I come at the lowest point of your life and I am still God to you right there. And I can take you and fix you. That doesn't sound like a God that is filled with rage toward my sin. It sounds like a God who loves me. I encourage you to read the whole chapter of Romans 8 this week. But when you get to the end of it, the idea is that we are overcomers through him who loves us and that Jesus loves you. Let me put this in terms that some of you need. Jesus likes you. He likes you. Sometimes it's easy to think about God loving us. He likes you just the way you are and can't wait to transform you. So the spring of doubt, number one, is that some of you just aren't believers. Number two is that there's an uncertainty concerning the affection for you and your partnership within your own salvation. The third spring of doubt for some of you is because you are in habitual sin. And instead of confessing and repenting, you bury it and you try to hide it and you put on an exterior so that everybody thinks you're better than you are. David tells us in Psalm chapter 32, starting in verse 1, he said, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Now, I want you to notice in that that he doesn't say blessed is the man who has no iniquity. He said blessed is the man whom the Lord doesn't count his iniquity. That's forgiveness. Hallelujah. That I can enter into a place where God forgives me of my sin, forgives me of who I am and what I think and what I do, and as a result of that, it is lifted from me. That's the joy of salvation is I come to the Lord in sickness and in sin death. And God speaks life into me, takes my sin, throws it away, gives me the robe of his righteousness and trades places with me. And I get the inheritance of his righteousness and he died for all the rottenness of my sin. Theologically, this is correct. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We all fall short. Let me repeat that. I am a sinner. I am a sinner. And I fall short of the glory of God. But I have an advocate who has done the work for me. And it doesn't matter how good I try to make myself look to you. It is the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ that has changed me. And that gives me a hope that I can move from the doubt into the stage of life. So he looks at us as unbelievable sinners and that Christ paid your bill. And then we keep reading. He says, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, but in whose spirit is no deceit. For when I kept silent... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Selah. Now, Sila means stop right there and think a little bit about what you just read. Don't rush on to the second verse. Stop and think. Here's what David says happens when you build walls around you and you project that you are better than you are or that you are stronger than you are or that you have it more together than everybody else has. He says what happens in that is that it will have both a physical response and an emotional response. Physically, he said, when I try to hide that I'm a sinful man in need of Jesus, my bones ache. There's a physical ache that goes on when I try to project that I'm somebody I'm not. There's an aching that goes on. I call that the the work of the Spirit that tries to draw us out of that so we can take our mask off and realize we're all broken in need of a Savior. And then he says, I have an emotional response. He says, I feel like your heavy hand is on my heart. I'm not able to sleep. Does that not sound like conviction? When we lay our head on the pillow at night and we can't sleep, and the first thing that comes to our minds, is, oh, Lord, is there anything on the record between me and you that's keeping me from peace right now? Would you please just do a work in my life and remove it so that I can have the peace that passes understanding so that I can sleep? But he begins to describe the very things we go through. When we try to build this facade around us and show everybody just how good we are. And he says, I can't pull it off. He says, in fact, trying to pretend to be sinless makes me feel as if I'm in the summer and everything has been drained out of me. Listen, secret sin is exhausting. It's exhausting. He goes on in verse 5 and he says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. In other words, he says, Lord, here's the real me. Look at my heart. It's a deep need. I can't hide who I am from you. And so I'm not going to play the games anymore. I'm going to let you do a real work within me because I'm so, I'm so worn out from trying to hide the secret person that I am inside. And I need you to be at work within me. He says, I didn't cover up my giddy, and I confessed my transgressions to the Lord, and it said, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Oh, hallelujah. So now he begins to move and do a little comparison. He's going, when I was quiet about my sin, when I built this wall of protection that made me look better than I really am, my bones were wasting away, my heart was heavy, the vitality for life begins to wane, but when I confessed before the Lord my iniquity, I was forgiven, and then remember back to how he began, because he goes, blessed is the man, happy is the man, peaceful is the man, free is the man whose transgressions are not held against them. Oh, my friend, men and women, there is a freedom that comes in knowing that he has died for us and has redeemed us. You do not have to be somebody you're not. We are all redeemed children of God. That's why we sing with such joy. And so quit working so hard at trying to hide habitual sin and give it to the Lord. Worship team, would you please come? So I wonder what your doubts are saying to you today. Doubt can be an essential ingredient to step into a vibrant faith. Skepticism, questions, they don't turn God off. Thomas doubted. He could have been nicknamed all kinds of things, but he was nicknamed the doubter because of that instance. But it turned his life around when he was able to experience the living God, and today somebody here is going to get to experience the living God, and it's going to change your life and your eternity. Because finally you're going to step out and let God be God. And in experiencing Him, you will have life. Would you stand with me as we sing this morning?
1: Is broken, great are you, Lord. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise, we pour out our praise, it's your breath in our Wills cry, these bones will say
0: To have an encounter with a living God. And I don't know what's going on behind the walls of your life, but I know the one who can come and meet you where you're at and change everything with one touch because he's a God that we don't have to doubt. He's a God we can trust. So won't you make your way and let's sing this together in victory and liberty together as God responds to us as we praise his holy name. Hallelujah.
1: Shout your praise! Our hearts will cry. These bones will sing. Great are You, Lord. Sing it again. And all we earth will shout Your praise. Our hearts will cry. These bones will sing. Great. The Lord will sing.
0: I finished a series on the power of the Holy Spirit and in that series I was mentioning that there are those of you that have gifts and manifestations of the Holy Spirit but because of the way things are and the size of the congregation some of you may never want to speak out so I said if God is dealing with you write something down and give it to me let me tell you what the Spirit of the Lord laid upon the heart of one of our sisters this morning before the first service started oh my children why do you doubt me I have shown you so many glorious things. I have shown you my saving grace through my son, his life and death and his resurrection. I have shown you my everlasting love so many times in your life. Sit back and listen to my still small voice as I tell you, beloved, I was there when you felt so alone. I was there hugging you and whispering to you my love for you. I was there when you were so full of my joy. I was there when you wept. I wiped your tears away. You are my most glorious creation. I love you with a love so everlasting. Come to me. Talk and walk with me. You are a precious gift to me, and I love you always. Spirit of the Lord.
1: We're going to have usher
0: workers that are going to be altar workers that will be here in the front, and here's the thing. I'm not going to ask how many of you need to respond because that's What's taking place in your heart right now, but what I am going to ask you is that you do not leave this altar until you have joined with somebody and say, I need you to pray for me that the doubts that I've been going through, that I would have an encounter with the living God so that the doubts of, you know what, I don't know that I'm a saved child of God would go away. Or the doubts of, I've been trying to be so good and trying to partner with God on my salvation that those would go away. Or the doubts that you may have because you've been living a double life. You've been living a life that you can come to church and the moment you leave here, you recognize that you don't hate sin. There's things within your life that the Lord wants to deliver you from today. This is why we are here. None of us are good on our own. We all come because we're redeemed children of the living God, and that's why you're here. You didn't even know the Spirit of God was drawing you today. It's the day He sets you free. Your doubts will be gone, and we walk in victory.